Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. What's up, shadowy sleuths? Welcome to Sinister Silhouettes, the podcast where we dive headfirst into the darkest corners of the human psyche. I'm Tasha Pierce, your guide through the twisted tapestry of true crime, unsolved mysteries, and paranormal phenomena. Together, we'll unravel these sinister silhouettes, shining a light on the darkness that can reside within the human soul. Please do me the honor of rating, reviewing, and subscribing to Sinister Silhouettes wherever you're listening. Today's story takes us to Japan, specifically the Kantu region, which includes Tokyo, Saitama, Chiba, and other cities. On a seemingly ordinary day, just before noon, an earthquake measuring 7.9 on the Richter scale struck the area. This powerful quake lasted 14 seconds and left the region in utter devastation. Over the day, there were 114 subsequent tremors, which contributed to 187 major fires in Tokyo alone. Electricity and water was cut off, and the survivors grew more and more anxious. The death toll from the earthquake was estimated to be between 100 to 140,000 people. Bodies littered the streets. Damage was in the billions of yen. The citizens were cut off from information and instructions from government officials because newspaper was the media of the day. Of course, given the utter destructiveness of the quake, printing presses and newspaper offices were also damaged or completely destroyed. This left a vacuum for reliable information. In 1923 or 2023, Japan or the U.S., people are gone people. Rumors began to abound, especially surrounding the actions of a labor union organized by left-wing Japanese activist Yamaguchi Seiken. The Stevedore Union, led by Yamaguchi Seiken, was representing Korean laborers in Yokohama, advocating for their rights and interests as dock workers and addressing broader social and political issues as well. Following the earthquake on September 1st, 1923, 
Yamaguchi promptly organized his union to provide essential supplies such as food and water to the local community. This effort involved procuring provisions from damaged buildings. This looked a lot like socialism to law enforcement and that was a no-no. The police perceived the labor union as a hotbed of socialism and their well-organized relief efforts likely caused unease among law enforcement. Katsutsu Nishizaka, the chief of the Kanagawa Prefectural Police, disclosed that on the night of September 1st, he assigned a specific task to his district leaders to address this urgent situation. This marked the initiation of a law enforcement-driven misinformation campaign aimed at the Korean population, an ominous precursor to the impending eruption of violence. Seizing upon the prevailing atmosphere of fear and uncertainty that had engulfed the local populace in the aftermath of the earthquake, the police actively contributed to the dissemination of unsubstantiated rumors. These rumors propagated a narrative that portrayed Koreans as the architects of an impending uprising in the wake of the seismic catastrophe, capitalizing on the vulnerability of the affected cities. Among the swirling gossip were insinuations of various wrongdoings attributed exclusively to Koreans and their sympathizers, including allegations of arson, other forms of attacks, robberies, and even claims of orchestrated plans by Koreans to assault Japanese residents. The litany of accusations extended further, encompassing charges of murders, the poisonings of wells, and the plotting of bombings. Additionally, the rumors insinuated a connection between Koreans and socialist movements, alleging that the socialists were backing these Koreans and even suggesting instances of Koreans masquerading as police officers. The collective impact of these allegations created an atmosphere rife with suspicion, fanning the flames of an emerging crisis. This wasn't simply xenophobia. It was targeted racism. Martial law was proclaimed, ordering citizens to not carry weapons of any kind, except numerous accounts from Japanese eyewitnesses reveal that beginning on the night of September 2nd, police officers in Yokohama, Kanagawa, and Tokyo began conveying to residents, Japanese residents, that it was permissible to harm Koreans. Some directives were conditional, stipulating the elimination of Koreans who resisted arrest, while others were more unequivocal, urging to eliminate any Koreans who enter the vicinity or exterminate any Koreans you encounter. Concurrently, on the same night, as the police organized a vigilante group to target Koreans in Yokohama's Noje region, one of the organizing officers informed a newspaper journalist that Koreans had been apprehended possessing a list of neighborhoods to set ablaze, along with supplies of bombs and substances for well poisoning. It turns out those items identified as explosives and poisoning agents were actually canned pineapples and a bag of sugar. But why let the truth get in the way of a good, or in this case, inflammatory story? In Yokosuka, police officers informed locals that Korean men were committing sexual assaults against Japanese women instigating Japanese men to form impromptu mobs for vigilante justice. 
In Bunkyo, the police falsely circulated reports that Koreans had contaminated the water and food supply. As a consequence of these rumors propagated by the police, beginning on September 2nd, Japanese citizens formed impromptu groups and confronted strangers on the streets. Those suspected of being Korean or Chinese were immediately subjected to fatal attacks. In an effort to conceal their identities, frightened Koreans and Chinese individuals adopted Japanese attire. They also attempted to correctly articulate specific phrases which involved challenging elongated vowels. Those who failed these linguistic tests were met with violence. The noted Japanese playwright Korea Senda found himself targeted by a mob and later recounted his ordeal in 1988. He said, On the second night after the earthquake, baseless rumors spread about Koreans supposedly intending to retaliate against the Japanese by raiding the town. I was mistakenly identified as Korean despite my repeated denials accompanied by assertions like, I am Japanese, I am a student at Waseda University. While presenting my student ID, they demanded that I pronounce A-I-U-E-O and recite the names of emperors from Japanese history. Thankfully, there was someone who recognized me. Filmmaker Akira Kurosawa, who was a child at the time, was astonished by the irrational behavior of the mob. He recalled, With my own eyes, I witnessed a crowd of adults with contorted faces rushing like an avalanche in chaos, shouting, This way! No, that way! They pursued a bearded man, assuming someone with such facial hair couldn't be Japanese. Just because my father had a full beard, a mob armed with clubs surrounded him. My heart raced as I glanced at my brother, who was with him. He was smirking sardonically. Imagine being fueled by deep ethnic hate and paranoia, but being unable to distinguish the quote-unquote enemy from one of your own countrymen. This was the climate of that night. On the morning of September 3rd, the Home Ministry dispatched a message to police stations throughout the capital, encouraging the dissemination of rumors and violence. The message stated that, There is a group of individuals seeking to exploit the calamity, be cautious because Koreans are plotting acts of terrorism, robbery through arson, and bombings. Sadly, some Koreans sought refuge in police stations to evade the massacre, but in certain areas, vigilantes forcefully entered the stations and removed them. In other instances, police officers handed groups of Koreans over to the local vigilantes who proceeded to execute them. Both vigilante groups and Japanese army personnel resorted to burning Korean bodies in an attempt to eradicate evidence of the killings. Official Japanese reports in September asserted that only five Koreans had been slain, and even years later, the acknowledged death toll remained in the low hundreds. Subsequent to the massacre, surviving Koreans painstakingly documented the scale of the, the atrocity. Based on their testimonies, accounts from Japanese witnesses, and additional research by scholars, present estimates of the death toll vary between 6,000 and 9,000. At the time, there were only roughly 20,000 Koreans living in Tokyo and Kangawa. Uh, the Korean population of Yokohama experienced casualties ranging from 50 to 90 percent. 
In the wake of the Great Kanto earthquake, regional police and the Imperial Army used the chaos as an excuse to also target and kill political dissidents. Socialists and Chinese communal leaders were abducted and murdered, with the authorities claiming that they were planning to overthrow the government. In one of the most notorious incidents, Imperial Army officer Masahiko Amakasu executed the married couple Sake Osugi and Noe Ito, along with their six-year-old nephew. Six years old. Their bodies were then disposed of in a well. Their murders caused widespread outrage, but thousands of people actually signed petitions calling for leniency for Amakasu. The case also drew attention in the United States as the child was a dual citizen with American nationality. However, efforts to get the American embassy involved were unsuccessful. Amakasu and four other soldiers were court-martialed for the murders. That sounds like a good thing, right? During the trial, Amakasu's lawyers argued that he had acted out of patriotic duty and that the murders were justified for the public good. Surprisingly, both the judge and the military prosecutor were sympathetic to these arguments, and Amakasu was sentenced to just 10 years in prison. He was released after seven years and six months, an age that the child never got to see. And then he later went on to work as a special agent for the Imperial Japanese Army in Manchuria. After Japan's World War II surrender in 1945, Amakasu committed suicide by taking potassium cyanide. Following the tragedy, Navy Minister Takarabi Takishi lauded the Japanese vigilante groups for their warlike spirit, commending them as a tangible outcome of military enlistment. Stories depicted through paper theater performances known as Kamishibai were presented to students, vividly illustrating the carnage that unfolded. Entertainers would actively encourage children to applaud the actions of the vigilante mobs as they engaged in violence against perceived quote-unquote threatening Koreans. In 1927, an official historical account of Yokohama City asserted that the rumors regarding Korean assailants had some factual basis. I guess there were good people on both sides, huh? I mean... In what universe would government officials, the military, and law enforcement agree to not only incite violence amongst its population, but to also cover up the dastardly deeds? I mean, this doesn't sound familiar at all. And why would the populace go along with this reprehensible conduct? Well, the events of the 1923 Great Kanto Earthquake and its aftermath, including the violence and discrimination against Koreans and other minority groups, can be characterized as examples of mob violence. Mob violence refers to the collective and often spontaneous actions of a large group of individuals who engage in violent or destructive behavior. It's driven by emotions such as fear, anger, panic, or hatred, and it can lead to the harm or even death of targeted individuals or groups as seen here. Like, just for the sake of argument, putting it in more current terms, let's say groups of people with differing political or religious affiliations. Imagine if, instead of promoting unity, the leaders of such organization sold division. That could lead to the members of those factions committing horrendous acts in the furtherance of their cause. 
that if those involved are then praised for their behavior, they fail to appreciate the damage they may have caused. They might see themselves as patriotic or righteously indignant. They might even begin seeing the other side as, quote, less than human, unquote. Categorizing a group as less than human or dehumanizing them can have profound and dangerous consequences. This dehumanization is often a precursor to discrimination, violence, and human rights abuses. So here are some of the further dangers that are associated with this harmful practice. Dehumanization holds far-reaching consequences that profoundly impact both individuals and society. Firstly, it serves as a dangerous catalyst for violence, making it easier to rationalize harm against the dehumanized group, often leading to a disregard for their suffering. Secondly, dehumanization has the potential to escalate violence over time, starting with verbal degradation and evolving into physical brutality, even reaching the horrifying depths of genocide as evidenced by historical tragedies like the Holocaust. Furthermore, it undermines the recognition of the fundamental dignity and rights of all individuals, paving the way for human rights violations as society becomes apathetic towards the well-being of any marginalized group. This insidious process also normalizes cruelty, permitting acts that would typically be deemed morally reprehensible to be endorsed or glorified within the context of dehumanization. Additionally, dehumanization deepens societal divides, intensifying polarization and animosity, hindering peaceful resolutions and common ground. It erodes empathy, causing a diminished capacity to extend compassion or aid to those considered less than human. Beyond immediate conflicts, dehumanization leaves a lasting imprint on social fabric, trust, and intergroup relations, posing challenges to reconciliation and healing. Its ramifications extend to policymaking, enabling unjust and discriminatory measures that curtail basic rights, opportunities, and resources for the targeted group, perpetuating cycles of inequality and marginalization. Think the civil rights era in the United States. Furthermore, Dehumanization contributes to the proliferation of hate and intolerance, fostering an environment where extremist ideologies gain traction and become normalized. Finally, it exerts a corrosive influence on individual ethical considerations, potentially leading those who engage in or endorse dehumanization to forsake their moral compass and disregard human rights and ethical principles. But hey, like I said, this doesn't sound at all familiar. Back to mob violence. It's important to acknowledge that mob violence is a destructive and harmful phenomenon that can have devastating consequences for individuals and communities. The events of the Cantu Massacre serve as a tragic reminder of the potential for collective irrational behavior and the need for societal mechanisms to prevent and address such violence. Now, all sarcasm aside, the Cantu Massacre does teach us important lessons that apply to today's world. First, the spread of false information and narratives and rumors back then 
was similar to how digital platforms work today and how they can make fear worse by sharing unchecked details. It's important to think critically and check facts before you react. That rhymed. Second, the massacres targeting of minority groups like Koreans shows the dangers of prejudice and discrimination. It reminds us how unfair treatment based on things like ethnicity, politics, or religion can harm communities. This is especially important in situations where marginalized groups face unfairness. Third, the chaos after the earthquake showed how vital capable leadership is during crises. Leaders need to stop the violence, enforce and adhere to laws, and address hate and discrimination to keep society together. Also, the idea of mass hysteria and group behavior during the massacre warns us about the risk of large groups acting irrationally and harmfully. This means we should think about our actions in groups and avoid joining in harmful behavior driven by strong emotions. The media's role in spreading rumors during the massacre teaches us about the power of modern media to shape how we see things. Responsible journalism and being careful about what media we consume are very important, especially since media has been shaping what people think. Even in the tragedy, we saw moments of people coming together and helping, like Yamaguchi Seiken and his union of Korean laborers. This shows how important community support and everyone working together is, especially during tough times. Learning from the history of the Cantu massacre helps us see the dangers of violence, discrimination, and mob behavior. These lessons guide us to be more understanding, caring, and thoughtful in today's complex and connected world. So you might ask, Tasha, why did you share this story today? And there is always a reason that is never happenstance that I decide that I'm going to share a story. Sometimes it's the timeliness of the story and in others is based upon personal experience at times. And in personal experience, we all know that former President Donald Trump and a list of 18 co-conspirators were placed under indictment in Atlanta by district attorney by the name of Fannie Willis, who is an African-American woman. Many of you may not know that uh, former President Donald Trump kind of issued an attack against her character via his social media uh, network, Truth Social. And it was a very ugly and degrading comment that he made. But of course, of course, his followers picked up on it. And after the indictments were handed down, uh, a Twitter user made the comment, let me guess, the DA got gangbanged first. Now, because Funny Willis is doing what many of us consider to be her job, which is holding all people regardless of their level of power or stature in American society, she's holding all people to the standard of the law. This does not by any means mean that uh, Donald J. Trump and his co-conspirators will be found guilty. They are actually presumed innocent until proven guilty. There has to be a preponderance of evidence for Mr. Trump and the co-conspirators to be found guilty. These personal attacks against the district attorney 
for doing her job seem to be very, they're very motivated by politics. This caused me, after I saw the comment that says, let me guess, the DA got gang banged first, this caused me to reply. And usually I stay out of politics because I consider myself neither Democrat or Republican. I think freely and I, I will align myself to the best available person for a candidacy. That being said, I responded to this little thing because I guess I felt a, I feel a little bit of solidarity with this black woman who is just doing her job. And I use the words of uh, Michelle Obama, who is, I guess for all intents and purposes, a hero, kind of like a big sister who reminds you of things that you already know. (laughs) And Michelle Obama, at one time under attack for just being in the White House, (laughs) she made the, the statement, when they go low, we go high. And that was my response. I said, when they go low, we go high. And the response that I got to that was this. If you're a liberal, you're as low as low gets, as in subhuman garbage. If you're not a liberal, then you have no worries. Are we at the point where a political disagreement between conservatives and liberals mean that these people are not human? Does that mean that they are garbage they are as low as low gets that to me is extremely disturbing and my response to that and that was my final response by the way I didn't continue this argument over days and weeks I wasn't going to sleep thinking about it but I did wake up thinking about it because I felt like this is something that I might want to share with you all my response was It's actually disturbing how politically aligned people are so uncivil to one another. Politics aren't a person's entire identity. And it didn't used to be this way. And I mean that. Politics, religion, uh, ethnicity, all of that is not a person's entire identity. There, There are layers to people. And once we get back to that, where we can have a disagreement without without completely throwing away a person for this disagreement. If a person can make a mistake and earn redemption, if a person can be held to their apologies when they make a mistake, until we get back to that, we are in danger of repeating history. And I could have today talked about the Tulsa, Oklahoma race massacre, but that story has been done by Lovecraft Country and The Watchmen and other forms of media. If you guys want me to do that, please let me know. But because it's been shared, I thought I would share a story that has been whitewashed by history. Not saying that nobody knows about the Canto Massacre, but it is not something that is taught as often as, say, the Holocaust. Even though it was Maybe not on the same scale as what happened during World War II, but it was just as horrific, especially for the people who had to endure not only uh, that short period of time where these atrocities were taking place, but in the aftermath. How do you move forward from being treated as less than human? 
those are my questions, I guess, for the day. I, I was upset for just a little while. I didn't feel attacked by this woman, and I guess it's because she's only reacting to the climate that the, the United States is in right now. So I didn't feel personally attacked. But I felt like this is a damn shame. It's a damn shame that this is where we are because we are going to move backwards before we move forward until we get this under some type of control. And, and I guess that's all I have for this uh, for this topic today. And, and I appreciate you all for indulging me ranting at the end here. Before we wrap up this journey into the shadows, remember, the mystery doesn't stop here, fam. If you got a theory, a question, or just want to share your thoughts, don't be shy. Reach out to me at SinisterSilhouettesPodcast at gmail.com because this over here is all about community. And hey, if you're enjoying these Sinister Silhouettes as much as I'm enjoying bringing them to you, make sure you rate, review, and hit that subscribe button on your favorite podcast platform. You won't want to miss a single spine-tingling episode. So until next time, keep your flashlight handy and your curiosity alive. This is Tasha signing off. So shadowy sleuths, stay sharp, stay sassy, and keep shining the light on those shadows. Be safe out there. Peace. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park.